This summer, throughout our time in worship in Austin, we're going through a sermon series that I've titled Genesis Fallen Family of Grace. And I, I had this idea for this series on spring break when Alyssa and I were driving our family to and from Colorado, and she was reading to me and to us this book called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And it's a fascinating book. Uh, And what it does is it describes this family, his family growing up. And here's the way that the New York Times book review describes it. It was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, New York Times says that Mr. Vance was raised in Middletown, Ohio, a now decaying steel town filled with Kentucky transplants, which at one point included his mama and pawpaw. Pawpaw was forever coming home drunk. Mama a violent non-drunk was forever tormenting him, whether by serving him artfully arranged plates of garbage for dinner or dousing him with gasoline. All of this guerrilla warfare affected their children. Shocker. Mr. Vance's mother was an empress of instability, which is a great quote. Violent, feckless, prone to hysteria. A long stint in rehab couldn't shake her addiction to prescription narcotics. She'd later move on to heroin. She spun through more boyfriends than this reader could count, and at least five husbands. The only reason Mr. Vance made it out in one piece, by the way, to go on to Ivy League schools, is because his grandparents eventually reconciled, becoming his official guardians. And here's the way J.D. Vance describes this book and his family. He says in the very introduction of the book, nearly every person you will read about is deeply flawed. Some have tried to murder other people, and a few were successful. Some have abused their children, physically or emotionally. Many abused and still abuse drugs, but I love these people, even those to whom I avoid speaking for my own sanity. And if I leave you with the impression that there are bad people in my life, then I'm sorry, both to you and to the people so portrayed, for there are no villains in this story. There's just a ragtag bunch of hillbillies struggling to find their way, both for their sake and by the grace of God for mine. And that book and that description in particular, it sounds to me like Genesis. It sounds the way that God engages with the people there. And today we come to chapter 16, and we find two women, uh, two wives effectively, one an official legitimate wife and the other who's a slave who's forced to become some sort of surrogate mother. And together they teach us what to do when God delays in fulfilling his promises because God makes promises to these women in this passage. And so three points this morning. Sarai's pain, number one. Another's echo, number two. And then Hagar's call. So pain and echo and then a call. But first of all, Sarai's pain. Our passage, as you might have heard and noticed, it begins somewhat ominously, immediately jumping into the problem of the passage where it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And that's the initial problem. And that problem, in a very real sense, is on God. Because as you read the scriptures, you'll notice time and time again, this this issue of barrenness comes up, and it's God who ultimately opens and closes the womb. But it's especially on God because already two different times in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12 and immediately before this, just one chapter before in Genesis 15, God has come to Abram and he said, I'm going to make you the father of many. Your children are going to be as many as the stars in the sky and as the grains of the sand on the seashore. But at this point, they have none. 
And Abram is 85 years old at this point. So far beyond prime birthing years. And, and Sarah, though she's a little bit younger, she still is, is old and past these prime birthing years, 75 years old. And even though people at that time in the biblical narrative lived to be much longer than we live today, they're still even far past middle-aged. And here's the way that the pain is most acutely communicated here in verse 2. It says that the infertility problem lies with her, that her body is the problem. And as one commentator put it, if you think about her and this issue, her body is like an empty grave where there's no possibility of life. It's dark and it's deep, and it's dead. And this story here in Genesis 16, it reverberates throughout all the scriptures. This, this issue of barrenness, it becomes a theme. It becomes this subplot detail that continues so often that it becomes this representative condition that epitomizes all of the pain and all of the problems that we as people in this world feel post-Genesis 3, post-fall, and in all of our attempts to run and to turn away from God. And so whomever you are this morning, I would argue that you know barrenness in some form or some fashion. You know what it's, life, what it's like to have an empty life in some way, to be fruitless, to be, to be purposeless, to, to struggle with meaning in your life. In fact, I think it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Scriptures. In Genesis 1 through 3, which, yes, is this ancient cosmology and description of how God created the earth, but he also describes us in those first few verses, and he anticipates the fall into sin and the fruitfulness of life, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth, and I would argue not just the earth, but us, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Emptiness chaos, purposelessness, and a darkness that's pervasive. And it's not just a darkness that's so thick and all-encompassing around us that we can't see the light that we know is out there somewhere, but a darkness deep within us. And so we all know in some ways what it's like to be barren. But some of us, and I would imagine some of you don't know this in a representative fashion. You know it personally. Our church in Austin, Austin's a young city. Our church is filled with young people and young couples, and so Alyssa and I have walked through infertility with a number of couples, a number of dear, dear friends. Uh, one couple I remember in particular, they, I'd married them, become very close friends with them, and for whatever reason, for various reasons, they couldn't get pregnant. And so for over a year, uh, we, we prayed, we, we anointed them with oil, we waited with them, we watched other couples get pregnant, we celebrated other couples with them getting pregnant, but not them. And then one night, Alyssa wasn't home, I was home bathing one of our boys, and I get a knock on the door, and I go to the door, and it's them. And the second that I saw him, I knew, because she, she had tears in her eyes, and he had this excited grin on his face, and I knew right then that our prayers had been answered, and that they were pregnant, and in fact, they were. But not all stories of infertility and barrenness, the literal kind, metaphoric kind, they don't all end this way. And that's, I know, at least from our church, and I imagine for this one too, that's what makes church hard to come to at times. Because I know the full story behind all of the children that we see at church. I, I know the story of this little, who's, this little girl who's now seven years old. But so few other people know the story, and they look out, and these couples who come, and they're struggling with this, they think, are we the only people in this church? We have 250 children, 12 years or younger. Are we the only people 
in this church who can't get pregnant? And the, and the, and the, the answer is no, but that, it doesn't feel that way. And that is true, I would say, of every dynamic of, and every situation of, of barrenness. It's all that same way. We all struggle like that. We come here and we think, am I alone in this? And the answer here is no. The answer to this passage, the way in which we can see ourselves in Sarai, the answer is no, you're not alone. And I, I don't know this church all that well. I know your pastor very well. And I know that he would want for me to say, and I'm sure he says this to you all the time, that you don't have to be alone here in whatever it is that you're struggling with. You can see yourselves in the scriptures. You can find others in this church who will walk with you through whatever it is that you face. But back to Sarah, Abram's wife, 75 years old, not able to get pregnant, and without in any way minimizing the pain of infertility today, in some ways, then it was worse, because then culturally, it was always considered exclusively to be the woman's problem. Men were never barren or infertile. It was women who always were. And secondly, marriage and motherhood was the only and exclusive vocational option for women. It was the way that women in that day and that age added to the well-being and to the future of the community. It was their job. And that was pretty much it. It was, it was either motherhood or, honestly, prostitution. Those were the two options for women. And so you can imagine how intricately marriage and motherhood was tied up in a woman's understanding of who she was, in her identity and her purpose in life. Still true today, but especially felt then. And so she was supposed to have sons who would fight for the community, provide for the community, protect it, or to have daughters who would then marry these men. And if they did, if you, if you were able to produce, you were somebody. You had purpose. You were something. But if you couldn't, who were you? What were you supposed to do? So take all of that cultural pressure. Take all of this personal pain that they have felt and then add to it the fact that God had promised her husband that he would have lots and lots of children. And the promise first came when he was 75. Now he's 85. So 10 years 10 years of perceiving herself to be the reason why her husband wasn't becoming the person that he was supposed to be. 10 years of confusion and of pain and of anger. And then you can begin to understand why she makes this proposal. Why she is so desperate as she seems to be here when she says, Abram, I got an idea. And this is where we get to point two. This, this echo comes here in the end of verse 2, because Sarah's actions and the way that they're described, they echo back. They, they sound like something that's been done by somebody else already in this Genesis story, because the end of verse 2 says, and Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Now, if you've read the, the scriptures and you know Genesis, you, pr you probably have heard that before, because it's also what's said of Eve and Adam, that God comes to Adam at the end of, of Genesis chapter 3, and he's describing the consequences for Adam's sin. He says, these consequences are coming to you because you listened to the voice of your wife. It's exact same language. But then also notice the verbs here that describe Sarah's action. It says that she took Hagar and she gave Hagar, quote unquote, to her husband. And back in Genesis chapter 3, it says that Eve 
saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, so she took of its fruit, and she gave it also to her husband, quote-unquote, who was with her. To her husband, who was with her. It's the exact same language. It's very intentional. The author is wanting us to read this passage in Genesis chapter 16 and think back to everything that we've already read back in Genesis chapter 3. And you can see the, the parallels. Sarah's plan, it looks good. It looks like it's going to bring delight. It looks like it's going to bring a blessing that is to be desired, that it's going to make them wise, that it's a wise plan. And it even makes logical sense because God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many. He didn't say, you, Sarai, would be the woman through whom all these children would come. And technically, Hagar belonged to her, so any children that came through Hagar would also come through Sarai. So it logically, rationally worked out. You could even argue it was selfless. You could say it was wise, but it looked and sounds just like Eve. Because it's a self-wrought plan by which she takes the future into her hands and attempts to do for herself what God seems slow in doing for her. What God seems slow or too disengaged or too inept or too uncaring to do, she's going to do it for him. And the point of both of those passages is that rather than wait upon the Lord and trust Him to do what He's promised to do, they turn to alternative sources. And they devise their own plan to do for Him what He's not doing. And, and notice where it gets, Sarai. Notice, notice where she ends up, especially in verse 5. Because it sounds as though it gets her into some sort of or type of slavery. And it's a slavery to contempt a slavery to Hagar's contempt. She can't escape it. The way that verse 5 describes it, she can't escape it. She can't endure it. So she goes back to Abram with another plan. I can't endure this. I can't escape this. And he says, do with your maidservant whatever you want to do. She's in your power. Because now she's ruled. She is owned by this. And I think it begs the question of us, what is it that rules us? Because we're no different. I mean, let's be honest. We've got our alternative sources. We've got our own self-wrought schemes, and they get us to the same place. So what is it that rules us? What outcomes of self-wrought plans control our life? When God delays, what do we do? What do we turn to? Um, Eve and Sarah both proved to us that our promised future, and we do have a promised future, that God has designed a future for you. He created you for a very particular future in relationship with Him, relationship with His people. He has a very particular future for you. But when that future is not being made real, we think we can make it real by our own human schemes and plans, and it might come from alternative sources, but we can't. We can't move forward in the life of faith or in relationship with God or relationship with others and in his plans and promises through our own self-wrought schemes. But we try. We try to compensate for God through many ways. Think about sexual love, for example. We not only have a number of young couples, married couples in our church, we, we have a number of singles. Austin is filled with single people. I mean, just the average age in Austin, Texas is 26 years old. So it's filled with young people. And I know that, that sexual love, and when we talk about this, it's a gift of God given to most people in marriage. But when those plans and those hopes and those designs and desires, when, when they seem slow and cunning, we turn to alternative sources when God delays. 
And for many, many in my church, many of the friends that I know there in, in Austin, the sexual love turns into a, some sort of slavery because they end up in a relationship that they know that should have ended a long, long time ago, but they just can't end it because now they're engaged sexually and it's just complicated. It's incredibly complicated now. And beyond that, the habit of pornography is another self-wrought scheme, and we struggle with this in our church. It's another self-wrought scheme to gain a twisted form of sexual love that is entirely dependent upon us and set in our terms and in our own timing exclusively for our own pleasure. And I know from engaging with men in my congregation, it enslaves. But again, it's a self-wrought plan. And there, beyond sexual love, there are other countless ways we do this. We do this with words lying or gossiping or slandering, talking about another person, especially those people that have those things that we want so much and that they have those things that we believe that we deserve or that we've been promised but we don't have, talking about them in such a way so as to tear them down. Anytime we tear them down, it can be a self-wrought scheme in order to gain what we think that we deserve or bullying people, acting in in an aggressive way autocratic fashion instead of seeking cooperation and peace. It's just moving what you want as fastly down the line as possible or disciplining our children harshly. And I think about this. I have three boys, 15, 13, and 9. They're trying. They're delightful. They're wonderful. They're trying. (laughs) But imagine disciplining your children harshly in order to conform them and form them or really break them into the people that we believe that God has desired and promised that by his grace someday that they would be. And it's a self-wrought scheme to do for him immediately what we want him to do and what he seems to be delaying in doing. And it ends up in the same place. We become a slave to our own schemes. And next week I'll be preaching on Jacob. He is the example par excellence in Genesis of that. And so friends, try and see yourself in Sarai. As difficult as it may be, try to see yourself in her so that you can find hope in this passage because the hope lies with Hagar. It lies with Hagar in her call. So this is the third point. This is where I'll close. In verses 7 through 10, God comes to Hagar through this this angel of the Lord, this mysterious character, but he comes to her. And the hope that is offered is simply this. The hope that's offered to her and to us is that the God of the Bible, he always shows up in the desert for the weak. It's another theme. It's another pattern. You read the scriptures or see it. The God of the Bible showing up for the weak in the desert. And notice here that when he he begins with Hagar, he begins by asking a question. Very similarly as he asks other questions in Genesis. He comes to Adam, first thing he does, ask a question. Adam, where are you? Where are you? And then he comes to Cain, Genesis chapter 4. Cain, where's your brother? Asking questions. Anytime God asks a question in the scriptures, he's not doing so for information. It's not because he's confused or he wants to find something out. He's asking for our benefit. And so he comes here to Hagar and he says this beautiful, I think, paradigmatic question. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Could ask it every day of our life. Tim, Where have you come from? Where are you going? And notice that he mentions her relationship with Sarai. She's trying to escape that, and he won't let her. Hagar here is in the desert because of Sarai, but Hagar is not innocent in that relationship's demise because Hagar took God's gift of a child 
and she turned it into a club to beat upon Sarai, to beat upon this woman who had already suffered so greatly. And yes, Sarai had treated her completely unjustly, but she hadn't treated her rightly or kindly because nobody's innocent in this passage. Abram's not innocent. Abram fails to lead his wife and fails to tell her, Sarah, this plan is not the way in which we're going to go. So nobody's innocent in this passage because these people aren't heroes. The Bible's not a book of heroes. It's not a book full of spiritual giants that we're supposed to emulate in, in, in an attempt to try and impress God and thereby earning his love and his acceptance. That's not the Bible. That's not the Christian faith. These people aren't moral and spiritual giants. They're moral and spiritual disasters, every single one of them. But thanks be to God that he keeps his promises to people like this, that he keeps his promises to people like us, people like Hagar who's weak, and failed in the desert of her own designs. He shows up and he, and he speaks to her and he calls her back to himself and he calls her to follow him in the very situation where he has placed her. Did you notice that? Hagar, go back. Go back to your mistress. Regardless of how unjustly and horribly she has treated you, go back, endure, and wait for me to act. Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. Truly submit to her. In other words, lose the contempt. Lose the contempt for her, regardless of what she does. Go back and wait for me to act and endure whatever it is you have to endure. And that call, this, this call to go back and to wait and to endure, it, it's not just Hagar's call. It's our call as well because God's promises always take longer than we would like in coming. And so endurance is essential to the Christian faith. I have this conversation a lot, or have had it a lot this past year, because we have many people in our congregation who are struggling with cancer. We've had four people, uh, all dear friends, who have struggled significantly with this, uh, one of them being a pastor on my staff, uh, another one who was a dear friend of mine who passed away on December 27th from colon cancer, actually bile duct cancer. I wear this bracelet for another dear friend of mine who's only 36 years old who has metastasized colon cancer, and a couple of months ago they ended chemotherapy just because it wasn't working. And so think about those folks in regards to the promises of God, because there are promises of God for healing in the Scriptures. All sickness, and I have this conversation with them, all sickness will be healed, all sickness, regardless of what it is. It will all be healed. It will either be healed immediately or immediately, or ultimately. Immediately, God can and does heal immediately without any outside use or secondary sources. He, he can, and he does heal immediately. He also heals immediately through the gift of modern medicine. But he also will heal ultimately at the resurrection of the dead. And the reality is, is usually, usually it's the last of those options. It's the last of those healings. Sometimes immediately, but very rarely miraculously. And that means, again, endurance is essential to the Christian life. It's essential in whatever struggle you have, in whatever it is that you find yourself facing in life. And so wait. Wait upon the Lord. Return to where it is that you've left or you're running from. Santa Barbara strikes me as a running place. It strikes me as a place where people run. Austin is a place where people run to. 
especially young people. They run there to try to escape something, but wait, return from what you're running from, and wait upon the Lord. The prophet Isaiah says those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Those who wait upon him will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not grow weary. They will run and never faint as they endure in the situation where God has placed them. Fifteen years after this passage. Fifteen years. So ten years to get there. Promise of God, ten years. Fifteen more years. In Genesis chapter 21, at the age of 90, God would fulfill his promise to Sarah. She would have a son the promised son. And also he would fulfill his promise to Hagar as well in the very same chapter. Both of these women have their promises fulfilled by God, but they're not the mothers. They're not the women in the scriptures who wait longest for God's promises concerning a son. Because in Genesis 3.15, God promises Eve that there would be one who would be born of her, an offspring, who would come and undo all of that which the devil the serpent and she had done, would undo it all, would undo the works of the devil, would return, even as Kyle spoke about earlier, return the life of the world to itself. And then she got pregnant, and she named her son, her firstborn son, Cain. And in Hebrew, Cain can mean he's here, because it's based upon the Hebrew word to gain. So she names her son Gain because she thought she had gained the Messiah who, who would be born of her and who would stomp on the head of the serpent. And in stomping on the head of the serpent would be struck on the heel. And so this son would undo and destroy the works of the serpent, but would die in doing so. She thought that that's who she had, but she didn't have the one who would come and die for the world. She gave birth to the world's first murderer who didn't restore the life of the world to itself, but took life. And so she had to wait, and she had to endure. She had to die in faith, waiting for God to finally fulfill that promise. And he did so in the person of Jesus, the one who, who came to us, even as God comes to Hagar in this passage, God comes in the flesh, in the flesh, to live for us, to die for us and for our sins and for all of our brokenness and to rise from that death in order, yes, to restore the life of the world, but to share his very life with us, the very life and love that exists between God the Father and God the Son that's so real that it is the Spirit, to share that very life with us. And even though that victory has come, we still wait for it to be fully realized. But make no mistake, it is coming. He is coming. He's coming and with him, all of his promises, the fulfillment of all of his promises, promises to the barren, to, to those who are held in contempt, to those who face cancer, to those embroiled in death in all its forms, to sin itself, and to make all things new. And until then, we wait, and we endure. So do not do it alone. Do not wait and endure alone. Make this church Make it your enduring and waiting coming. You cannot do it alone. I preached this sermon at our church several months ago, and very quickly thereafter, two support groups have been formed by people in our church, not by our staff. One for women who are struggling with infertility. They don't want to do it alone anymore. And then also another for men who are struggling with sexual addiction or pornography. They recognize they cannot do it alone. So wait and endure and do so with one another. And the Lord will support you and carry you through. Amen.